For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. title of our sermon this morning, The Purpose of God Stands. The Purpose of God Stands. This is Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. For those of you joining us, visiting with us today, we begin working our way verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And you've missed quite a bit in the first eight chapters of this book. We've been considering this book for some time now. In the opening eight chapters of the book, God essentially preaches the gospel to us. Paul essentially exposits or explains the gospel to us. In chapter one, he introduces that theme with these words. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel, the power of God to salvation. Now, the reason that Paul gives that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes is because in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed to undeserving sinners through the means of faith. That's what's taking place, if you will, in the gospel. For all those who turn from sin and entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, God credits to them. He puts to their account the perfect righteousness of his own sinless son as a free gift of his grace. Praise the Lord. Right? The one thing we need is righteousness. One thing we don't have is righteousness. Now, why is that good news? Why is that good? Why is it good news that God in the sacrifice of his own son through the means of faith would credit you with the perfect righteousness of his son? Why is that good news? Because the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all your unrighteousness. Did you hear that? The wrath of God. Is being revealed from heaven against all your unrighteousness, all your ungodliness. The Bible says, Paul says, the Lord says, you are a sinner and that you deserve the wrath of God. You deserve eternal punishment for your sin and rebellion against God. You may think that you're a good person, but God certainly doesn't see it that way. Your dog may think you hung the moon, but your dog doesn't know you like God knows you. You may have a Grammy that adores you, but Grammy doesn't know you the way that God knows you. Amen? Paul says there is no one, no one who is righteous. No, not one. All, every one of them, every person has turned aside and become unprofitable. You may have proclaimed your own goodness before. I think I'm a pretty good person. God says otherwise. And an examination of your own heart, an honest examination of your own heart would prove that fact to you if you would listen. All have turned aside, Paul says. All have become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Whatever the law of God says, whatever the law of God says, it says to all those who are born under the law, that means everyone who is born as a descendant of Adam, whatever the law says, it says to all those born under the law that every mouth may be stopped. You could lay your hand over your mouth and all the world may become guilty before God. You realize that's one of the purposes of the law is so that in the preaching of the law, all the world may become guilty before God. We are guilty under the law. And what we need in order to be eternally saved is righteousness. We're guilty and we need to be righteous. 
Paul explains that you're not going to get righteousness by the works of the law. You're a sinner. Even if you tried with all your effort, you're not going to be able to stop your sinning against God. We have a sin nature. We're fallen in Adam. You're never going to be declared righteous by the things that you do. You're not going to get there through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. You're not going to get there through the sinner's prayer of virtually every other Protestant church, it seems. That's nowhere in the Bible. Righteousness comes from the gift of God alone. God is the one who gives the gift of righteousness, and he gives that gift of righteousness, the perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness of his own son. He gives that gift to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. He gives it as a free gift of his grace. He offers that as a free gift of his grace to everyone who turns to Jesus Christ in a genuine and repentant faith. For everyone who believes Jesus Christ himself is the end of the law, for everyone who believes Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, having the very righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a free gift of God's grace through faith, God then, having given you that gift, counts you as righteous. He looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of his own son, and he counts you as righteous in his sight. Our sins are forgiven. And our sins are forgiven, not because God swept them under the rug. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ himself took your punishment on the cross in your place as your substitute. God punished him on the cross instead of punishing you. Do you see? What grace, what mercy, what goodness, what love, what kindness. Our guilt is removed because our sin has been removed. God's righteous wrath toward us has been exhausted on the person of his son. And we are treated then, on that basis, on the basis of Christ's own work, we are treated as though we ourselves are forgiven or righteous. We're treated as though we had never sinned against the law. But not only is our unrighteousness removed, not only is our ungodliness, our sin, not only is that forgiven, not only is the stain of our sin cleansed in his own blood, but Jesus Christ also obeyed the law of God in every point, in every way possible, always doing all those things that always pleased the Father. And because we are united to him through faith, he's now our head. He becomes through faith our representative. Where Adam represented us before, now Jesus Christ represents us in the gospel. And that through faith in him, we are united to him through faith. And God then, because Jesus Christ is our head, credits to our account the perfect, sinless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're treated and viewed accordingly. God sees us as though, not only as though we had never sinned against his law, but God now sees us as having obeyed every single point of the law. God sees us as obedient in Jesus Christ. He declares us to be righteous, and we have the righteousness of the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. From that point on, God treats us as righteous. We are justified in his sight. And you can see why Paul would say then later that we are saved entirely by grace. It's not do any work of your own, not do anything about you. You know, despite what Grammy might say, there's absolutely, there's nothing really that lovable about you. <laughs> We're not special in that way. All of it is a work of God's grace. All of it is a work of God's grace. God saved us in and through the person and work of his own son. And because of the person and work of our own, of his own son, we are declared to be justified. 
all by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. And that salvation, the salvation by grace through faith, that is not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. We have no business glorying in ourselves that we are somehow righteous. Our salvation, our righteousness is a gift from God, and our salvation is all of grace. And what we find then from studying the Bible, after we come to understand those things, and we entrust ourselves to Christ through faith, you turn from living life from yourself, you turn from your sin, and you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting him for righteousness, trusting him for salvation, when one does that, and the Lord comes with power, changing their life, sanctifying them, consecrating them to himself, We find from studying the Bible that even the faith with which we believe is a gift from God. That God had to author that faith within our own hearts and all that was necessary then for our salvation, every bit of it, all that was necessary for you and I to be saved, all that is necessary for you and I to go to heaven when we die has been accomplished by God, has been decreed by God in eternity, has been secured by the person and work of Jesus Christ and is being carried out by God in time. Otherwise, If it weren't for the work of God intervening with grace, we would never have turned from our sin. And because, brothers and sisters, Paul explains that because it is through faith that we're saved, it is entirely according to grace. And because it is entirely according to grace and not to anything to do with us, it is absolutely certain, it is absolutely sure to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. That is a faith, that is the trust, which will not disappoint You can take it to the bank. If you believe upon Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You have, present tense, eternal life. Such that Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that those whom God had determined in eternity to set his love upon, these he predestined, he ordained them beforehand that they should be conformed into the image of his son. All those whom he predestined in eternity past, he then calls to himself in time. And all those whom he calls to himself in time, he justifies through faith. And all those whom he justifies through the means of faith, he will most certainly glorify together with his son. And so the salvation of a sinner then, involves an unbreakable chain of God's gracious works. And because our salvation is based entirely upon his work and not upon our own, and because God is faithful to accomplish all that he has decreed, our salvation is absolutely sure and certain to those who put their trust in him. Leading Paul to say at the end of chapter 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. Ours is a secure salvation. Now, in our text this morning, in the text text under our consideration, and in consideration of God's free justification now of Jews and Gentiles alike through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul has now taken up an objection that is raised by the example of unbelieving and apostate Israel. In verses 1 through 5, Paul acknowledges a deep concern for the lost condition of his countrymen, Jews according to the flesh. He expresses the great sorrow, the constant grief of his heart over their unbelief. And Paul desires, if it were possible, he desires that even himself would be accursed on their behalf if it meant that his fellow Jews might be saved. Paul is mourning their lost condition. 
rather than seeking that righteousness that is a free gift from God through faith, rather than seeking that, submitting to that righteousness, the Jews have sought to establish a righteousness of their own through works of the law. Do you see the difference? You're going to go to heaven because you've been given as a free gift the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you reject that righteousness, you have no other recourse but a righteousness of your own. You're going to have to be a good person if you expect to go to heaven and you're not going to make it. That righteousness is bankrupt. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, the Jews, having rejected the righteousness that is given as a gift of God, they've rejected that righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ because they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews have attempted to establish their own righteousness through works of the law by being holy, so to speak. They're not going to make it. And Paul is mourning their condition. Many would then, because they've rejected their Messiah, and because they've failed to attain to the righteousness of God, many would point to unbelieving Israel. Many would point to apostate Israel and say then, well, God has cast off his people then. Notice the blame shifting. Not their sin, it's God. God has abandoned his covenant people. God has abandoned the covenant. God ultimately, God has been unfaithful to his word. Do you see the problem with that objection? Right? If the gospel that Paul preaches is true, and God is saving Jew and Gentile alike through faith in Jesus Christ, then what has become of God's covenant people who are languishing in unbelief? The word of God toward them, these objectors would say, the word of God toward them has failed. God's word has been rendered void. The word of God has taken no effect. And God has broken his original promises under the covenant to Abraham. Now, this is an implication that Paul flatly rejects. They would point to the Jews and say, see, God's not faithful to his word. That's an implication that Paul flatly rejects. And Paul is going to correct that error in our text. Verse 6, Paul says, but it is not that the word of God has failed. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the physical descendants of Abraham, but rather in Isaac your seed shall be called. In other words, we looked at this text last week. The word of God hasn't failed. God has not been unfaithful to his word. On the contrary, Israel has tragically and willfully misunderstood the promise of God to Abraham and to his seed. The Jews believed that the covenant promises of God were inherited by them because they had the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins. And being a physical descendant of Abraham it entitled them to eternal life. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about salvation from the wrath of God. The Jews believed they were entitled to that inheritance of eternal life because they had a blood, the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins. But God has determined that his promises to Abraham, the promises of the covenant, would ultimately be fulfilled not to a physical people through the works of the law, but to a spiritual people through faith in his own son. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A people who share the faith of believing Abraham and so are saved with believing Abraham. Those people, those spiritual people through faith in Jesus Christ, they are the spiritual descendants of Abraham himself. Therefore, Paul draws a distinction 
between the physical seed of Abraham and the spiritual seed of Abraham, who will inherit the promise, he draws that distinction in verse 6. Paul explains the distinction in verse 6. They are not all true spiritual Israel who are born into physical or ethnic Israel. You see the play on words? Nor are they all the spiritual children of Abraham merely because they are the physical children of Abraham. But, as the Bible says, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And God raises this. Paul raises this example now of the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. There were, incidentally, physical and temporal promises that God had made to Israel. There were physical and temporal promises. And God fulfilled every last one of them. It's important for us to understand this. Listen to Joshua. Joshua, in Joshua 23, verse 14, Joshua says this to the nation, not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Joshua says to Israel, did you hear him? Not one word of God's promises have failed to you. God has kept every single one of them. King Solomon to the nation of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56. Listen to Solomon. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised them. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. God had promised Israel. He had promised them physical and temporal blessings and God has fulfilled every word of every one of those promises. But there was also, there was also a promise of salvation. That was promised. That promise began in the Garden of Eden. Under the curse, even, the curse of the serpent, where God promised a future seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And it's through faith in that promised seed, that promised Messiah, that any would be saved. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in God's deliverance, that the people would be saved. There's a promise of salvation. There's a promise of eternal life, the promise of an eternal inheritance. And God made that promise to Abraham. And Paul's point is that he made that promise to Abraham and to his spiritual seed given through faith in Jesus Christ. Those spiritual, those eternal promises are not given on the basis of our physical descent. They're not given on the basis of the Jews' physical descent from Abraham. They're not given on the basis that you had a Christian dad or a Christian mom in your household. They're not given based upon our heritage. They're not given based on who we are. They're given based upon the promises, the purposes, the plans of God. They're based upon one's spiritual descent from Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for the righteousness that Abraham needed, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Did you know that you're a son of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ? You're a son of the promise. You're a son of the covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, those who are physically descendant from Abraham, Paul says, these are not the children of God, but rather the children of the promise are counted as the seed, the seed of promise. Four, verse nine, this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That those who inherit the promises of God are not determined by physical descent and the promised seed is not defined through natural birth. Rather, true Israelites are those who are children of the promise. 
Those whom God has determined to save, not through natural birth, but through a spiritual and supernatural rebirth. So brothers and sisters, from last week, what is the conclusion of our text? Who is true spiritual Israel? Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who are true Israelites? Who belong to true Israel? The church. We do. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ should change the way that you read your Old Testament, shouldn't it? If you're reading your Old Testament, who do those promises belong to? Those promises belong, those promises of restoration, those promises of an inheritance, those promises belong to the people of God, those people of God defined by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, defined by their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul then, in making his original point, think with me, he gives us yet another example from the very next generation of Abraham's physical descendants. Exhibit A in Paul's case, the sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Exhibit B in Paul's case, the twin sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Now remember Paul's point. Remember Paul's point. God makes a distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. God makes a distinction. It is the children of the promise who inherit eternal life. And God is faithful to his word. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is the gospel, the true gospel. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be accounted that righteousness that you need from Jesus Christ, it will be through faith in him, which makes you a spiritual child of Abraham, which makes you a spiritual inheritor of all of the blessings and promises made to Abraham. Make sense? Okay, now, if Paul had drawn his conclusion exclusively from the example of Ishmael and Isaac, further objections may have been raised. The Jews might have stepped up and objected that, of course, Ishmael was excluded and Isaac was included. One, Ishmael was the fruit of Abraham and Sarah's plotting. They took matters into their own hand, and Abraham had a child, Ishmael, through Hagar. So, of course, Ishmael would be excluded. Ishmael was born to Sarah's Egyptian bondservant. Hagar was a bondwoman. She wasn't even a true Israelite this time. The scriptures say, third, that simply in Isaac your seed shall be called. In other words, Ishmael might not have been saved, but certainly all the physical seed of Isaac, all of them, all of they, those people would be saved. But now... Paul, in expanding his case to include the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, he puts an end to all those objections. We see God not only making a distinction between Ishmael and Isaac, but now we see God also making a distinction between the twin sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, both Jews. With the example of Jacob and Esau, there can be no further doubt. The children of the flesh are not entitled to covenant promises. You're not entitled to covenant promises because of who you are. You're not entitled to covenant promises because of what you've done. And what that means, folks, is that you're not entitled to eternal life. You're not entitled to inherit with Jesus Christ. You're not entitled to inherit with Abraham because of who you are or what you've done. If you're counting on who you are or what you've done, you're going to perish with unbelieving and apostate Israel. You are like an Ishmaelite. God has determined that his promise of salvation would be poured out upon those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are the children of the promise. They are the children of the covenant, whose children you are if you believe in him, okay? But in expanding his case now to include the twin sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, he puts an end to the debate. 
The children of the flesh are not entitled to those promises. They cannot say to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. They cannot say, I had a past, my dad was a pastor. I've heard that said multiple times by people. Uh, They're going to heaven because their dad was a pastor. They cannot say to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. But rather, here's the point. The one whom God has chosen, the one whom God has determined to pour out his promises upon, the one whom God has determined to justify, to call to himself in time, to justify and to glorify, that is the one who will be saved. Now first, notice next the example then that Paul raises in verse 10. Paul says, and not only this, in other words, not only do I raise the example of Ishmael and Isaac as evidence to support my premise, that God distinguishes between the physical seed of Abraham and the spiritual seed of Abraham. Not only do I raise Ishmael and Isaac, but, verse 10, when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, it was said to her, verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. Those two sentences are connected. There's a parenthesis in verse 11 that we'll talk about in a moment, but that's the way that it fits together. Not only do I raise the example of Ishmael and Isaac, But, verse 10, when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, it was said to her, verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, God made a distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. God himself determined that it would be Isaac who would inherit the covenant promises through faith. That's an important point that we need to understand. God himself determined that it would be Isaac who would receive the covenant promises and not Ishmael, right? God determined that. And in the event that you're tempted to raise the objection that Ishmael doesn't count, God has also made a distinction between the offspring of Isaac himself. He's made a distinction between the, the twin sons of Rebekah and the patriarch Isaac. And God himself has again determined that it would be Jacob who would inherit the covenant promises of God and not Esau. And Jacob would inherit those promises through faith. Now notice Jacob and Esau. Notice all the similarities between them. Jacob and Esau had the same mother, Rebekah, a woman from Isaac's own family, not from among the pagans. Rebekah, you could have said, was a true descendant of Israel, descendant of Abraham. Jacob and Esau had the very same father, Verse 10, Rebekah conceived by one man, even by the patriarch Isaac. They had one father, the same father. They were conceived at the same time. They were twins. Even though Esau was born first and would have had the rights of the firstborn, the rights of progeniture, ordinarily would have been given the rights of the firstborn, God made a distinction between Esau and his brother, saying to Rebekah in verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. Who made that distinction? God made. God made the distinction. Now, what is Paul doing here? What is Paul doing? Paul in this is emphasizing the complete lack of any natural distinction between them a lack of any distinctions between them. No one could point to anything before they were born, before they had done anything good or evil. No one could point to anything that would distinguish Jacob over Esau. Esau was just as much a natural descendant of Abraham as Jacob was. Esau was even the firstborn son, just like Ishmael was. And yet God himself determined, God himself determined that Jacob would inherit the promise 
and Esau would not. Now, the Old Testament quote that Paul now references here uh, is found in Genesis 25. Turn there with me to Genesis chapter 25. And let's see this in its context. This distinction was made by God, and it's made by God in Genesis 25 before Rebekah gives birth. That's going to be important in a moment, okay? Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. I pray you've got your thinking caps on, right? We've got to think through and uh, chew up and digest this good meat, all right? These are things that God wants us to understand because he's placed these things in his word. We need to understand them for our own edification, for our own worship, for our own praise, for our For our own soul's sake, we need to understand these things, okay? Genesis chapter 25, look at verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's sort of reminiscent of God intervening in grace um, to give Sarah a child, right, in her old age. Here, God intervenes in grace to give Rebekah a child. But, verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, then why am I like this? And so she went to inquire of her OBGYN at the doctor's office down the street. No, she couldn't do that. She couldn't go and get an ultrasound to know what was going on. (laughs) So she inquired of the Lord. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this was the Lord's explanation to Rebecca for what she was feeling in her pregnancy. Um, there were two children, two children struggling within her, Jacob and Esau. And that, their struggle within Rebecca, even in their conception, that time before their birth, that struggle was a foreshadowing of future conflict, God says. Right? A conflict that is going to ensue between Jacob and Esau themselves and a conflict that it would ensue between the nations that would descend from Jacob and Esau, the Israelites and the Edomites. And it's in this conflict that the Lord says, the elder shall serve the younger. And we know from the history of Israel that it's in both cases. It's in the case of Jacob and Esau as individual people, and it's in the case of Jacob and Esau as nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. The Lord has both in mind here as he says this to Rebekah. The word, incidentally, for serve there, the older shall serve the younger. That's the quote in Romans chapter 9. That word serve doesn't here refer to physical servitude. There were times in the history of Edom that the Edomites served physical servitude, Israel. But that wasn't all the time, certainly not all the time. Um, But here, what that word means, what that refers to is the place of subservience. Ordinarily, the firstborn inherited the household estate and would rule over the household estate. And so all of his younger brothers, all of their younger siblings, would quote-unquote serve the older brother. In this case, the Lord, in his determination, in the Lord's sovereignty, God's own free choice, he determines that the the older will serve the younger. And the younger 
will receive the rights, if you will, of progeniture, the rights of the firstborn, and the older will be found in a place of subservience to the younger. We know that in the history because we see what has become of Jacob and Esau, don't we, in the Bible. Okay. Rights of the firstborn included a place of rule. And the firstborn would rule, the others would serve. That's why you see the brothers of Joseph, for example, so incensed at the dreams of Joseph in which all of the brothers bow down to their younger brother, right? That's one of the things that offended Joseph's brothers, why they wanted to have him killed. All right, verse 24 then, verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. And so they called his name Esau. Edom is a word that means red. Esau, typically a word that means hairy. (laughs) Uh, Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel. And so his name, in keeping with that, was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. It's clear from the context that those words in Genesis 25, the older shall serve the younger, are applied, those words apply to both the individuals, Jacob and Esau, and the nations that descend from them, the Israelites and the Edomites. We'll also see that in Israel's history. Now, it's also obvious from the context of Romans chapter 9. Turn back there with me. Romans chapter 9. It's clear from the context that Paul is applying this distinction particularly to the individual sons of Isaac, those individual sons, Jacob and to Esau. And what is Paul's point? Paul's point is this. God makes a distinction between them. God determines that Jacob is the child of promise and will inherit the promises through faith in Jesus Christ, Esau is rejected. Okay, God is the one who determines. Paul is making the point that not all Israel, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He's distinct, he isn't distinguishing nations, mind you. He's not distinguishing nations. That's a common misunderstanding of this text. He's not distinguishing nations. He's distinguishing between Jacob and Esau. He's distinguishing between Ishmael and Isaac, do you see? Paul is distinguishing the children of the flesh within one nation from the children of the promise within that same nation. He's talking about Jews, and he's making a distinction in the Jewish nation between those who are children of the flesh and those who are children of the promise. Paul was very aware of Israel's election by God as a nation. The Lord said to to Israel in Amos chapter 3, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God had certainly elected Israel as a nation. But although the physical descendants of Abraham were a physical part of God's corporate election of Israel, Paul's point is that not all of them individually were elect of God as children of the promise. That there were those within the nation who would not be saved. We know that from the Bible. There were many Jews of whom Paul had said, there were many Jews of whom God had swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. You remember? Many Jews, their corpses strewn in the wilderness. Many Jews who were swallowed alive, as it were, into the pit. Many who may have been identified with Israel's corporate election as a physical nation, but could not identify with spiritual Israel as defined by her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that although unbelieving Jews could identify with ethnic Israel, they could not be counted as the seed. Why? It's because they're unbelieving. 
and they've rejected their Messiah. And believing Gentiles, those who believe in Gentiles who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, although they may not be identified with corporate, ethnic, physical Israel, they could rather be identified with true Israel, with spiritual Israel, and that on the basis of faith in God's own Son. Such that, then, ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles alike are the true sons of Abraham on what basis? On the basis of their faith. True sons of Israel, true sons of Abraham, ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, all of them alike in one people, in one body. And what is the name of that body? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All together, Old Testament, the assembly of Israel was called the church. (laughs) The Septuagint translates it as ecclesia. In the New Testament, the church, the ecclesia of God, are those who have put faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, upon witnessing the faith of a Gentile centurion, he said this in Matthew chapter 8, listen, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He's talking about the faith of a Gentile centurion. I've found not even this such, such great faith in Israel. And I say to you, Jesus says, that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not from Judea, but from north, south, east, and west, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They're going to flood in, and they're going to sit down with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But, he says, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord Jesus Christ pointing to the unbelief and apostasy of a prevailing majority of ethnic Jews. The point, that point is made tragically clear in the individual life of Esau. Esau sold his birthright to satisfy his belly. Sold his birthright, counted it such a contemptuous, despised thing that he gave it up for a pot of stew. And although Esau may have prospered physically, temporally, as a nation himself, the Edomites, Esau missed out on the spiritual blessings of true and eternal riches. Esau Esau would be described later in the New Testament as a fornicator, as a profane man, a man who sought for repentance with tears and could find no place for it. Now, Paul's point, again, in Romans chapter 9, is that God is making a distinction between individuals. And that point is further emphasized by the explanation, then, that Paul gives in verse 11. Now, Paul interrupts his example in verse 10, with a parenthetical explanation in verse 11. And again, Paul is emphasizing the lack of any distinction between the two, the two twin sons themselves. The statement was made to Rebekah in Genesis 25 that the older would serve the younger. That statement was made before she had given birth. Verse 11, when the children were not yet born, the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. God made his determination. God didn't look down the corridor of time to see what they were going to be up to. He said, oh, yeah, I like that kid, Jacob. I'm going to pick, Esau's having trouble. I'm not going to, that's not how it works. God determined beforehand, before the children were born, before they had done anything good or evil, God determined. Now, Paul has said they're not all spiritual Israel, 
who are of physical or ethnic Israel. Spiritual Israel inherits the promises made to Abraham. Spiritual Israel is saved eternally through their shared faith with believing Abraham in God's own son. Those of mere physical descent from Abraham who have rejected Jesus Christ, what happens to them? They perish. They will perish in their sin. The first example of this distinction are the sons of Abraham himself. Isaac, born of the free woman, inherited the promises. Ishmael, born of the bondwoman, was cast out. The second and even more compelling example of this distinction by God are the twin sons of Isaac. Jacob inherits the covenant promises. Esau perished in his sins. And it's here now in verse 11 that Paul then provides, if you will, the profound explanation for why that particular distinction exists between them. Why are they distinguished in this way? Verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so that, and here's the why, that the purpose of God, the purpose of them according to their faith, the purpose of their decision when they prayed that prayer to ask Jesus in their heart, the purpose that, they, you know, I'm gonna, on my deathbed, I'm going to believe in Christ and I'm going to be, no, God determines, right? The children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her then in verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. The distinction cannot be found in the two sons themselves. Who causes you? Who makes you to differ from another? Why are you here this morning? Now, some of you may be here because eh, this is what we're supposed to do, right? It's Easter. We're supposed to, we're supposed to go to church. It'd be the right thing to do. Right? God created me. I believe that. So I want to go to church. Others of you, you're members here in good standing, have been here for a long time. You come every Sunday. Why is it? Why is it that you're here? God is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. And the one who decrees the ends has also decreed the means by which those ends are accomplished. And it may be that if you've never turned from your sin to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it may be that God has led you here in his kind providence to you. God has led you here that you might hear his word, that you might turn from your sin and be saved, that you might believe upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you don't go to hell and perish there for your own sin, but that Jesus Christ would take that punishment upon himself on the tree that you might be saved, that you might be delivered from the wrath of God, that you might be eternally a trophy of his grace. God makes that determination. It's God who is at work in our salvation. The distinction cannot be found in you. What causes you to differ from another? There are many, 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 many who are at home this morning. There are many. You profess to be a Christian. There are many who do not, who spurn, who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Who causes you to differ from another? God causes you to differ from another. It's God who is at work. The distinction, the distinction, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, may only be found in the electing purpose of God. God is the one who makes the distinction. It's not in any way according to your works. It's not in any way according to your heritage. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. It was through the righteousness of faith. The distinction in verse 11 is of him who calls. 
Not of works, but the distinction is of him who calls. Not of the one who puts his faith. It is of him who calls. It's not you because you're such a good person. It is of him who calls. God's choice, God's determination, God's election of Jacob rather than Esau. That distinction was made before the twins were born, before they could do anything good or evil. So that we might see the eternally significant distinction between them. That distinction could not in any way be attributed to their persons, but only to the purpose of God himself according to election. And that the outworking of that electing purpose in time was in no way merited by their works. But rather it was carried out through God, carried out by God in his effectual call in fulfillment of his own decree, grounding this saving distinction in the eternal purposes of God rather than our works. Paul would later refer to the choice of God as an election of grace. Flip the page and look at Romans 11. Romans 11. It is an election of grace. Why is it an election of grace? Because we don't deserve it and we don't work for it. We don't work for it. We don't deserve it. It is all of grace. Romans 11.5. Even so, then, at this present time, There is a remnant, a remnant who are saved. And that remnant is according to their decision. No, according to all the things that they did. No, according, I went to church every day. No, that election, that remnant, the salvation of that remnant is according to the election of God's grace. And if it's by grace, verse 6, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's not grace anymore because it's according to works, do you see? But if it is of works then it's no longer grace. If we say you're saved by grace, but then we say you've got to work really hard to get it, (laughs) that's not grace. That's not grace. And if if it depends upon us in any way, we're in big trouble, okay? What then, verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect of God have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. God's determination. What we find in the election of Isaac over Ishmael, what we find in the election of Jacob over Esau, what we find then in the election of spiritual Israel to salvation through faith in God's own son, rather than the physical seed of Abraham according to the flesh, what we find is a manifestation of God's own eternal purpose that an elect and a spiritual seed would inherit the blessings of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, whose seed you are through faith in Jesus Christ. Now lastly, in support of this premise, Paul offers one more compelling piece of evidence, and that comes from Malachi chapter 1. Turn there with me to the very end of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Israel has been restored from exile, but Israel again, again, they're languishing in old sins. The priesthood is corrupt. The people have given themselves to pagan wives and Israel has fallen back into idolatry. So God sends Malachi, his messenger, Yahweh's messenger, to address the people. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The Lord says to them, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now think about that for a moment. There are many ways in which God has shown love to you. He's given you food on your table, giving you air in your lungs, roof over your head, clothes on your back. Paul says he's filled our hearts with joy and gladness. 
He's not left us without a witness of himself. And all of that, God has done good. That's God's common grace to us. And God in all that does us good. That's a sense in which God demonstrates his love to all those who are made in his image. That God has a distinguishing love, an electing love, a love in which he determines and purposes for a particular people. And in this case, God talks of his particular distinguishing love for this physical nation. He says, I have loved you, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The Lord answers Israel, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Well, of course he was. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The evidence that Paul gives of this distinguishing love is the example of Jacob and Esau. God says to Israel, you remember those twin sons of Isaac. The fact that I've loved you or that I love you is I've said before, I've chosen. I've chosen Jacob, Esau, I've hated. He's demonstrated his love for Jacob. He's demonstrated his love for Israel at this very point in their history. By their return from exile, God has restored them to Jerusalem. He's rebuilt the temple. He's reinstituted their worship. And what has become of Esau? In the comparison where to see the love of God for Jacob as opposed to Esau. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And, look at verse 3, laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but we will return and we will build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation, wrath, forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Jacob should see, Israel should see, that the Lord loves them by the way that he's treated Esau and not them. Do you see? Notice that Esau was an object of God's righteous retribution. The word hated, the word hated does not mean that he simply loved Esau less. Why do we play games with trying to reduce the, the meanings of these words? The two statements reflect two extremes, those two extremes seen in the way that God treats them, restoring Jacob from exile and destroying Edom. God's love chooses, elects, saves, blesses. God's hatred rejects, condemns, punishments, punishes. Are those people who are in hell, are they loved or hated? The Bible would say they are hated by God, rejected, condemned, his righteous retribution being poured out upon them. Paul relies upon this example to highlight a distinction between Jacob and Esau in God's electing purpose, but also to highlight the distinction between those who are saved and those who perish. In the electing purpose of God concerning those he is determined to love, God saves with an electing love in electing grace. Those whom God has determined to leave in their sin, God condemns to the praise of his justice. At the very heart of the distinction between those who inherit the promises and those who do not, at the very heart of the distinction between those who are saved and those who perish, is not anything found within the persons themselves, but is entirely, rather, found within the heart and mind and purpose and will of God alone, who determines in electing love to save a particular people for his name, to the praise of his glorious grace, or he determines in righteous retribution to leave others to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice.
many will immediately reject Paul's implication here. Over the 2,000 years since this book has been written, there are people rejecting this book, rejecting the clear words of Paul in this chapter. Like Sometimes all you have to do is read it. Chapter, Romans chapter 9, you just read it, and they're like, I don't believe that. I'm just reading the Bible. <laughs> instantly, instantly, the reaction often is, that's not fair. That's not fair. Fair would mean that everyone perish. That's what's fair. So let's not talk about fairness, okay? Nevertheless, those who object in this way charge God with unrighteousness. And Paul is going to take up that charge in the very next section of text, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unfairness? Is there unrighteousness? Or is there injustice with God? Certainly not. And Paul is going to explain why. Brothers and sisters, in light of this truth, there simply is no basis on which we may boast. Can't boast in your heritage. You can't boast in what a good person you are. You can't boast about the things that you've done. You're not going to stand before God in that day of judgment and say, God, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I've done in your name. I believed upon Jesus. (laughs) I did this and I did that. You're not going to stand before God with that case. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's not by works, lest anyone should boast. This humbles proud and arrogant man. There are no circumstances in which we may hope. There's nothing about ourselves in which we may hope. We may hope only in God and in his Christ. That is your only hope. And that hope is well-grounded if you believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation, if you'll turn from your sin and entrust yourself to him. And that trust, that faith is evidenced through the fruit that that living, healthy, thriving faith produces. It's evidenced through fruit. Are you trusting Jesus Christ? It's going to show up in your life. It's not you you living that way so that you can earn favor with God. That's a sure proof of your perdition. It shows up in the fruit of a healthy, thriving, God-gifted faith. There is no hope, no ground for hope in anything or in anyone else. Put all, put all of your hope and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. 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 Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this testimony of your word. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately it doesn't have anything to do with us because, Lord, we are hopeless apart from you. We praise you and thank you that it is entirely of you, entirely of your grace through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the means, not of our works, but through the means of faith, so that in all that way, it's that your purpose according to election might stand and so that it might be sure to all the seed of Abraham whose seed we are through faith in your son. Help us, Lord, to understand these things. Commit them, uh, plunge them the distance from our head to our heart and they might take root there and they might bear fruit to your glory. I pray, God, that you would save sinners to yourself. I pray, God, that you would edify your saints with the knowledge of who you are and what you've done and that we would worship and praise you in eternity as blessed beneficiaries of this glorious inheritance, these glorious promises made to Abraham and to his seed, and that together with our Lord Jesus Christ who secured them for us. May he be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.